Well, every good Christmas story begins with some relational strife. In the movie Elf, Buddy is separated from his family at birth, raised by elves at the North Pole. When he finally gets a chance to return to New York and find his family, he discovers that his mother is gone. His father's become a greedy, unpleasant man who wants nothing to done with, do with his weird and long-lost son. Clark Griswold is an all-American father who wants his family to have a perfect Christmas together. But when both in-laws show up and Clark's redneck cousins, things get ugly fast in the Griswold house. Good old Charlie Brown falls out of favor with the Peanuts gang when he refuses to get on board with their Christmas pageant idea and insists on bringing home a pathetic Christmas tree. In every case, in every story, it's going to take nothing less than a Christmas miracle to put the family and friends back together. Now, there's a reason these stories resonate with us in the Christmas season, and it's because the Christmas season can be so challenging on relationships. One counseling website lists some of the reasons the season is so stressful relationally. Not being home for Christmas. Being home for Christmas. <laughs> Staying with extended family or having them stay with you. Spending time with children who may not be your own. Spending time with children who are your own <laughs> and drive you crazy. Splitting time between in-laws or stepfamilies, Missing lost loved ones who aren't around the tree this year. Financial pressure, unmet expectations, disappointing gifts, overcrowded calendars, clashing traditions, all these things take a toll on relationships. One study in the UK suggests that in the month of December, the average married couple has four fights a day. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like we're doing pretty good <laughs> in comparison to that. And a dating website says the two weeks before Christmas are the most, one of the most common times of the year for couples to break up. And there's two reasons. One is the stress of the season, and two, guys don't want to buy the girl a gift. And that <laughs> explains that. So all these pressures make the holiday pretty rough on relationships. And one counselor puts it this way. Christmas exposes what's been lacking in a relationship or brings to the surface what's been hidden. Anger, disappointment, distance, resentment, loneliness. Like ugly sweaters, they all come out at Christmas. Now, we're having a little bit of fun with this idea, but the truth is, it's not so fun when you are in the midst of some of these painful, broken, troubled relationships. And I'm sure we're all expecting in the next couple of weeks, we'll find ourselves in some difficult moments, some lonely circumstances, some awkward or even tense family or friendship gatherings. Could be there's some here today who aren't sure they or their relationships are going to even survive this holiday season. Some of those relationships seem so troubled, so challenging, it'll take nothing less than a miracle to see them put right. Do we dare to believe those kinds of miracles are actually possible? And if they are, how should we approach those troubled, challenging relationships in the Christmas season and even beyond? Today we're continuing our Advent series on miracles and by looking at the miracle of relationships being restored. 
So once again, we're going to go to the Christmas story, this time as it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we have been focusing in this Christmas season on the Holy Family. That's what tradition calls the household of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. For the past two weeks, we've been looking primarily at Mary, the virgin conception, and then her Magnificat. Today, we'd like to bring Joseph in the picture, so we're going to jump from Luke's gospel to Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells the story from Joseph's perspective. Let's pick it up at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, the first thing we learn about the Holy Family is that they got off to a very unholy start. And here they are, a young Jewish couple. Mary's probably 14 or so. Joseph is likely 20 or so. They're betrothed to one another, having been carefully arranged by their family. They're looking forward to their life together in a small town of Nazareth. And then suddenly, they find themselves pregnant out of wedlock. A little bit of background will help us understand just how difficult this was for everyone involved. Marriage in the ancient world in first century Israel usually involved a two-stage process. First, there would be the, the ceremony of betrothal, usually at the bride's home with a couple of witnesses and the formal exchange of marital vows. From that moment on, the couple belonged to each other. They were legally bound to one another, even referred to as husband and wife. In fact, if you look at the text again, it's Joseph is described as Joseph, her husband, because from that moment on, legally, he was her husband. But then the second stage wouldn't take place till about a year later with a much more elaborate ceremony, usually in the groom's home. And at that point, he would bring his bride into his house. They would consummate their marriage and begin their life together. Now, from what we can learn about the custom in, uh, in Galilee in those days, uh, a, a betrothed couple would, had, would have had no private time together from their first ceremony to the second. So when Mary was found to be with child, there were only two possible explanations, and neither one was good. Either Mary and Joseph had had sexual relations before that second marriage ceremony, or Mary had had relationships with someone other than Joseph. Now, if it was the first, both Mary and Joseph were sinners. If it was the second, then Mary was the sinner. Either way, it was scandalous. And a scandal that would remain with them from which it would be very difficult ever to overcome. And it wasn't just a problem for the two of them but for their families that would bear this shame for generations to come, and for the entire faith community, disrupted and unsettled by this breach of morality and faith. It was not only an unholy scenario, it was an unhappy beginning as well. I mean, Joseph and Mary, they had dreams, just like any young couple, of what their life together would be look like. They were both fine people from good families. They had every reason to expect a happy, fruitful marriage and life together. And now the whole thing is ruined. They're talking divorce before they've even begun. Now remember, only Mary knows what's happened. 
So the only conclusion left for Joseph is that Mary has, is not the woman that he believed she, heard she was. That she has been unfaithful, not just to him, but unfaithful to God. Try to imagine how painful, how hard it must have been, how confusing for Joseph to try to wrap his head and his heart around that betrayal. Now, the truth is, if you have lived through any kind of relational breakdown or turmoil, you know something about this heartache and pain and confusion. A loved one suddenly dies and is just gone from your life. A friend deserts you, wants nothing to do with you anymore. A spouse wants out or wants you out. A child leaves home or the faith or both. A business partner betrays you. A brother and sister in Christ lets you down. Maybe a whole church lets you down. And so you're hurt, you're confused, you're angry, you're lonely. And you wonder if things can ever be put right again. That's how it was for Joseph and Mary and everyone who knew them. There was nothing left to do but call the whole thing off. Divorce was the only option. In fact, it it wasn't an option. The law required that a man divorce an unfaithful spouse. Now, he could do it quietly, minimize the public embarrassment and disgrace, but people would see what had happened. And the shame, the shame of it all would be with Mary and with Joseph and with that child and their families for the rest of their lives. It was an unholy, unhappy beginning to this family's life. And it wasn't going to get any easier. Eventually, they came to that second ceremony. But how awkward and uncomfortable it must have been. It should have been a happy occasion. Every family, every bride and groom dream about their wedding day. But here, the whole thing's been ruined. It's now uncomfortable. Then there's the awkwardness of beginning their life together. Still uncertain, no doubt, of one another and of what was happening. Still conscious of the judgmental stares and ostracism of the members of their family and community. And then there's that difficult trip to Bethlehem, a three-day road trip that'll wreck any family relationship. Then the lack of accommodations and the lonely birth. Even those first ceremonies that should have been happy occasions, the naming of the child, the presentation at the temple, even those happy moments for a new family, they're tinged with embarrassment and discomfort. And then this threat from Herod and the flight to Egypt. Why is this happening? What have you gotten us into? They must have said to each other and to God. And then returning to Nazareth and having to relive the whole thing all over again. So it was not easy for this family. A very unholy, unhappy way to get started. Difficult and lonely and confusing. But notice how it ends. Notice how this chapter of their story ends. We have to jump back to Luke's gospel to hear it. Chapter 2. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. They made it. Through all those awkward moments, all those stressful circumstances, all the pain and the confusion and the doubt and the suspicion, they made it. They not only made it, 
they were able to provide a good and godly home for this child who grew up to be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. How did this happen? By what miracle did they overcome all this heartache and difficulty? What can we learn from them about the troubled, challenging relationships of our own lives? Let's take a closer look at what happened here behind the scenes because as I went through the story and reflected on it, I discerned at least three responses on the part of Mary and Joseph, responses that allowed God to do something marvelous in their lives. And those same responses are available to us as we think about our troubled and challenging relationships. And the first response that I see to these difficult relationships is the response of faith. Believing that God can do the impossible. Now, faith is just confidence in God. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not closing your eyes and hoping it all turns out okay. Faith is believing there's a God in heaven who can and will break into human experience and do remarkable things. We began this whole series on the premise of a virgin birth. If a virgin birth is possible, then anything is possible. Now, we can't demand a miracle from God. We can't work some formula that forces him to do what we want. But we can create conditions. We can create space that allows God to do what only God can do. And that begins with faith, believing that God exists and that he intervenes on behalf of those who seek him. That was Mary's response right from the beginning. Her very first response is faith. Now, when the angel first announces what's going to happen, she naturally responds, how can this be? She knows, I'm a virgin. But as soon as the angel explains it, it will be a work of the Holy Spirit, immediately she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She believed. But, but that wasn't the end of her faith. She now has to trust God to get Joseph on board with this plan because he doesn't know. He hasn't understood yet. And she tells him, but he clearly doesn't believe it at first. She can't make him believe. Only God can do that. And so she has to trust God to bring Joseph around and make him part of the plan. Now, for Joseph, his faith didn't come quite as easily as Mary's did. He, of course, doesn't believe it the first time she tells him. I mean, as hard as it would have been for him to accept that Mary had been unfaithful, it was easier to believe that than to believe in some kind of a spontaneous conception. Those things just don't happen. I'm sure most of us find it easier to identify with Joseph and his struggle with coming to faith and belief. But then something happened that helped Joseph's faith along. Let's go to verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, an angel visitor makes things easier to believe for sure. But still, eventually the angel's gone, and you're left with your thoughts and the reality of how things work in this world. And so he still had to come to believe that God could do an impossible thing 
and that he could rise to the challenge of raising and providing for this special child who was not his own in the normal sense of the word. So they both have to come to places of faith and belief, and so do we as we approach our troubled relationships. Right now, I'd like to ask you to think of a relationship in your life that needs a miracle. It could be a troubled or broken relationship. You, you can't imagine how it's going to be put right again. Maybe it's a, it's a decent relationship that just could be far better than it is. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a relative, a co-worker. Take a moment right now. Think of a relationship in your life that needs a miracle. Chances are you've done what you can to fix it, to address it, to help it, but now it's clear to you that only God can, can put this right. We defined miracle as a wondrous and inexplicable event that can't be scientifically explained, for which God is the only explanation. The chances are you have a relationship that's going to need a miracle like that because there are things that only God can do. Maybe a marriage that needs to be saved. A child that needs to come home. A friendship that needs to be put back together. An empty space in your life that needs to be filled. These are things that only God can do. Only God can change a heart. Only God can convict a person of sin. Only God can heal a deep wound. Only God can bring us to a place of humility and repentance. Only God can give us the courage to speak up. These are things only God can do. And so the first response to a troubled, broken, challenging relationship is to bring it to God in prayer. Prayer is the expression of faith. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is an action. And the first act is to bring it to God, to lay it out with Him, honestly, humbly, passionately, intently. Maybe prayer is something that you're used to doing, but you haven't really prayed about this one yet. Maybe prayer is uncomfortable for you and a new thing, but that's what God's asking you to do. Pray privately. Pray every day. Invite a spouse or your family to pray with you if that's appropriate. Find friends or a small group who will pray with you and for you. The miracle begins with faith. But a second response to these challenging relationships is obedience. Doing what we can to put things right. You see, God doesn't do the impossible until we do the possible. And in every relationship, there are always things we can do, things God has asked us to do, that can begin to move things in a better direction, that give God room to work. We learn that from Mary. For Mary, obedience meant saying yes to God's plan, which she did. But the first thing she had to do after that was to talk to Joseph, to tell him something that would be very hard to hear. Joseph, I'm pregnant, and you're not the father. How hard was it to say those words? How hard was it to hear those words? Almost every troubled relationship needs to hear some hard thing. It, 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 the healing begins with some hard conversation, a first conversation. 
I can't live like this anymore. I'm concerned about your drinking or your anger or your workaholism. I was wrong and I'm very, very sorry. I feel like we're not as close as we used to be. I'd like you to come home again. Or I think I'm ready to come home. These aren't always easy things to say. They're not always easy things to hear. But every troubled relationship needs a first conversation like this. Think about the relationship I asked you to think about a moment ago. Is there something that needs to be said right now? So for Mary, obedience meant saying a hard thing. For Joseph, it meant doing a hard thing. Remember, Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. He, he's a, a highly regarded man in the community. He has a bright future ahead of him. If he takes Mary as his wife, people are going to assume one of two things. Either he and Mary were intimate already, which makes him a sinner, or Mary was unfaithful to him and he's marrying her anyway, which makes him a fool and a sinner. Either way, he sacrifices his reputation and, and the future he had probably envisioned if he takes Mary as his wife. He could have preserved his future and his reputation by divorcing her. No one would have blamed him. But he chooses to do the hard thing, the thing God asks him to do. And by taking Mary as his wife, he was taking her shame upon him. He would now bear the burden of blame for the circumstances in which they found themselves. And there may be things God is asking you to do on the way to restoring that broken relationship or deepening that challenging relationship. Maybe he's asking you to forgive someone, even though they've hurt you deeply. Asking you to acknowledge that what they did was wrong, but then not hold it against them and not bring it up again. Maybe he's asking you to reach out and take the initiative with someone. Even though you feel like they're the ones who should be reaching out to you. You've done it so many times before, but he's asking you to do it again. Maybe he's asking you to give something up for the sake of a relationship, a habit, a hobby, a friendship, a, a, a possession, a promotion, a dream. Maybe he's asking you to sacrificially serve somebody to put their needs and interests ahead of your own. Maybe he's asking you to face your own issues, your addiction, your workaholism, your anger, your passivity, your controlling tendencies. Now, these aren't easy things to do, but the healing and restoration of any relationship almost always involves us doing some hard things on the way to healing. Remember, God doesn't do the impossible until we do the possible. Last week, we talked about the, the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000. God did the impossible, impossible part. He multiplied the loaves and the fish to feed all those people. But not until the disciples had taken responsibility for what they could do, which is to go find some food and organize the people and hand it out and collect the leftovers. Miracles are, are, are a collaborative effort of God doing what he can do as we do what we can do and making space for him. Now, just a couple of qualifiers here. 
there are some things we shouldn't do. We shouldn't stay with someone who's abusing us or endangering us. If you or your children are in danger at home, the first thing you need to do is to get safe, which probably means getting out or getting some help. And if you should be in that kind of a situation today, understand there are people here, pastors and partners, who can help you and are ready to help you. Don't leave here today if you find yourself in a situation like that. There are some things we shouldn't do, and we shouldn't stay in a dangerous, destructive relationship. And then there are some things that we can't do. We can't make somebody love us. We can't make somebody stay with us. We can't make someone come home. We can't make someone accept us or like us or forgive us or apologize. Only God can do those things. And so we bring the relationship to God and invite his power. We do what he asks us to do, and then we leave it in God's hands. God's hands. And that leads us to the third response from Mary and Joseph, and that's patience. Allowing time for God's work to unfold in a person's life. Relationships take a long time to heal and a long time to mature. Sometimes miracles happen overnight. Usually they unfold in a series of small miracles over months or years or decades. Now, we're not given a timeline for how things unfolded here between Mary and Joseph, but I imagine it this way. We're, we're, we're told that, that Mary goes off to visit her relative Elizabeth. But we're not told exactly when that happens. As I imagine it unfolding, Mary first has the conversation with Joseph and tells him what's, what's, what's going on. He has a hard time believing it. Then, I believe, Mary goes off to visit Elizabeth. It would have been strange for her to suddenly disappear without telling Joseph anything. Then she goes off to visit Elizabeth. Now, her time with Elizabeth is very important for her to get affirmation of what's God doing, what God's doing in her life. But her visit to Elizabeth does something else. It gives Joseph time and space to process what's happening. I believe it was during that time she's away that the angel appears to Joseph and, and, and relieves his fear and tells him what to do next. So Mary had to be patient, give space, and then Joseph has to be patient. Now, he believes the angel. He does what he has to do. He takes Mary as his wife. But there are no guarantees, no guarantees that this is all going to turn out to be true, that it's all going to turn out well in the end. There had to have been times that Joseph second-guessed this whole thing. Was it really an angel who appeared to him in a dream that night? Or did he just have too much spicy food for dinner? A lot of months to think about it, to wonder what was really happening. It would be many, many months till that night in Bethlehem when the child is born and the shepherds come with news of an angelic choir that perhaps for the first time Joseph knows for certain that God is with them. That was just the beginning of the waiting. They had 30-some years in front of them. 30 very ordinary years without a lot of miracles. 30 difficult years with stresses on their relationships. There are times that Jesus and his parents don't understand each other. There are times Jesus and his siblings don't understand each other. 
It's not going to be till the end of Jesus' life, till the agony of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection, that finally, it seems, Mary and brothers begin to understand the miracle that God has done in their family's life 30 years later. So as we consider how we respond to these difficult relationships, we bring them to God, we do what we can, and then we have to wait. We have to leave it with God. And I know, I know some of you are waiting a long, long time for God to do a work in some relationship in your life. The message of Mary and Joseph is don't give up. God is at work. Keep praying, keep doing, keep loving, keep serving, and give God time and room to work. Living the impossible means believing that God can, can do the impossible, can restore our relationships, and then doing what we can to put things right. Now, we've learned a lot from Mary and Joseph. I've offered some principles for how to approach relationships. But we still have to wonder, can God really work a miracle today in my relationships, as troubled as they are? So let me leave you with a story. A miracle story from the book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago by Eric Metaxas. The book is entitled Miracles. And in the book, Metaxas tells the story of some friends of his, a couple he knows named Paul and Lisa. Now, Paul and Lisa are a successful Wall Street power couple. They're living in a spectacular home in Fairfield County, Connecticut, with a couple of children running around. Paul's putting in 12-hour days, six days a week, leaving before the kids are up in the morning and getting home after, after they are in bed at night. Lisa is doing the upscale suburban mom thing, raising lots of money for worthy causes and making sure her family has the best of everything. But along the way, their marriage grows cold and distant. And Lisa is often weepy and sad and withdrawn. Paul just writes it off as a phase of life, and when it happens, he just retreats to his office or the club. But one day, she seems to be especially sad, and so he asks her what's wrong. I don't know where to start, she says, but I can't go on like this anymore. And she proceeds to describe how very, very unhappy she is. Now, for some reason, this time, it sinks in for Paul. And he suddenly sees the life and home and family and reputation that he's been building all these years. It's about to crumble around him, and he collapses in tears. He's undone by it. But what's so disturbing to him is that Lisa seems unfazed by his response. She just doesn't care anymore. And in that moment, Paul says, weeping in his home, he did something he hadn't done for a long, long time. He called out to God. Now, he and Lisa had given up on God and church a long time ago, except for Christmas and Easter, and he wasn't even sure who he was talking to or what he was saying, but he knew that the only way his marriage would be saved if some power greater than him intervened, and so he prayed. Well, it just so happened that that week, Paul got invited to a men's Bible study in the nearby town of New Canaan, Connecticut. The study is actually pretty well known. It was held at a prominent businessman's home, and it's called the New Canaan Society. Many men from Grace have actually been a part of that study along the way. And the speaker that day happened to be Tim Keller, one of the best preachers and preachers in America today. His topic that day happened to be the power of prayer, and Paul happened in that crowd of 200 men to bump into a marriage counselor. 
who happened to offer to spend time with he and Lisa, Lisa who for some reason said yes, she would go for help. And so they began making great progress, and it seemed to Paul as though they were out of the woods. He began telling his friends that God had saved their marriage until there was a knock on the door one day, and a state marshal was there issuing divorce papers that he put in the hands of the five-year-old son who then had to deliver them to his father. Lisa wanted out. She was done. Now, Paul knew at that point he couldn't make her stay. All he could do was bring it to God and stay as long as he could and love her no matter what. And that's what he determined to do. Now, by this time, Lisa had taken off her wedding ring. She was sleeping in another part of the house waiting for the divorce to be finalized. I don't have time to describe all the miracles that are uh, included in this story, but at one point, Paul is praying in his home, and he invites Christ to come into his home, and he experiences the presence of Christ in his home, walking with him from room to room to room, inviting God's healing and restoration. Nothing like that had ever happened to him before or since. Now, one day, Lisa is driving home from a speaking engagement in New York, and she is suddenly overcome with grief and remorse for the state of her soul and the state of their marriage. Pounding the steering wheel, tears streaming down her face, she shouts out loud in the car, God, save me, save my marriage. She pulls off the side of the road six times just to get a hold of herself, to pour out her heart before she can get home again. Well, the following Sunday was her son's sixth birthday, and the boy asked for two things for his birthday. One, that she would go to church with them, which she had not been doing. And secondly, that they would go see the Polar Express that afternoon. Now, Lisa had no interest in going to church. It was a small town. Everybody knew their troubles, and she was not, about to, she was not interested in having all the judgmental stares of church people. To her surprise, people were loving and welcoming and gracious, and she found the service remarkably hopeful. They went off to watch the movie, and the movie ends with the story of a Christmas bell that rings for those who believe. And Lisa says it was as if God was speaking to her right there in the movie theater. Believe. She knew what she had to do. She had to believe that God could help. She had to go home and leave the rest to God. The next day, she put on her wedding ring. That night, she moved back into the bedroom. That was 10 years ago. And they've been happily married ever since. God did the impossible. He saved a marriage that looked like it was, for all intents and purposes, done. But Paul and Lisa did the possible. They had the hard conversations. They went for help. They hung in there with each other. They gave God room. And in the end, he brought their marriage back together. Now I realize that's just one story. And, and you, the relationship you're looking at may be far more painful and broken than that. I understand that. All I know is that the God who worked in their lives can work in your lives as well. And I know stories don't always have that kind of an ending to them. Sometimes the people we're praying for don't come around. They don't see it our way. They don't respond to God. We can't control them, and God won't force his way on anybody. Sometimes the miracle is that God heals our hearts and gives us the grace to move on and have a second chapter. But the lesson we learned from Joseph and Mary, the lesson played out in Paul and Lisa's experience, is that living the impossible means believing that God can restore our broken relationships and then doing what we can to put things right and trusting God to do the rest. 
And as we finish today, I want to give you, give us an opportunity to bring some of these relationships before the Lord this morning in prayer. Let's bow together, and I'll lead us in a few moments of guided prayer. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today through the story of Mary and Joseph. Thank you for the hope and the help that it offers to us. And the promise that you can do a wonderful thing in the relationships that we struggle with today. So Lord, hear our prayers now as we quietly name the relationships that are on our hearts today. And speak to us about the things you would have us to do to begin putting them right. you, Lord, into this time and this space. We invite you into the relationships that we have named. We ask you to tell us what you would have us to do, and then grant us the faith and the patience to wait. And Lord, if the first relationship that needs attention is our relationship with you, if we are far from you, if we have never trusted you to forgive us and make us new, may that be our first prayer today. Thank you for coming into our world through your son, Jesus, for offering us the forgiveness of sins and a fresh start. We who are unholy and unhappy can be made holy and well with you and the ones we love now and forever. We thank you for that promise. May it be true in our lives and our homes our church and community, and the wider world. In Jesus' name, amen.